On this week's Devils in the Details, we discuss what went wrong in United's 3-1 defeat to Brighton at home on Saturday, including United's new formation, what worked and what didn't, and where does that leave us headed into a midweek fixture at Bayern Munich? Do we have a chance of pulling away three points in our first Champions League match? All right, Case, it's been five matches now into the Premier League season, and I think a lot of people are still unconvinced about United. And, I mean, they have enough evidence, I guess. There have been three losses, and I'd say this one was definitely more concerning than the first two uh, away at Spurs and Arsenal. What are your thoughts after that match? And, I don't know, what can the audience expect us to talk about today here? I think there are a lot of options for what we could talk about today, because a lot happened in that match. That I think was different from those first four matches. Most the most obvious of which being the four four two diamond, right? The the formation change, which arguably was demanded by absences, not through injury for the most part, because I think this had to do with the situation at right wing, which we discussed last week on the podcast. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it all. Honestly, there are a lot of different. There are a lot of differences but I think it all begins and ends with with a diamond do you agree with that yeah I mean I think those are the differences that we should really focus on here because I think the 442 diamond constituted a something that was different to the first few games and b I think the first source of something that truly tactically worried me from this side something that I think could be a big source of problems throughout the next few weeks and months if they persist with this shape and so I think that's makes it a good thing to talk about um, and and makes it different to the past few games where I think we both had the stance that we weren't particularly worried about this team going forward and I think the best way to start is to actually give people an overview of what this change actually meant for United especially out of possession because I think that was where we saw the most adverse impacts Um, do you want to maybe Give us a not-so-quick, probably, overview of uh, what this shape changed about United's out-of-possession approach and what that meant in in terms of their ability to uh, prevent Brighton from playing through their press in this match. Okay, I'm just going to warn everyone listening. This is about to be a long rant, and it's going to be pretty technical. And I'm going to do my best to describe to you in audio form something that is pretty inherently visual. So you're going to have to buckle in. Like, if you're the kind of person who listens to podcasts while they do something else, it might be hard for this part of the podcast. And for that, I apologize. I'll do my best to make that not true. You think of a 4-4-2 diamond and you look at the 11 that United rolled out yesterday against Brighton. My guess is what that probably presents to you uh, was, was that, you know, United were running out this 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1 formation. They had a right winger. That right winger was no longer available. They swapped McTominay for that right winger and they tucked that right winger into midfield. That is probably what it, probably conceptually how you, how you look at that on the surface. Imagine how United press in their 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1 formation. The striker takes the ball sided center back. 
which is to say the center back who has the ball, let's say. The ball-sided winger takes the ball-side fullback. So, you know, if Hoyland is the striker, theoretically, and Rashford is the left winger, and the ball is with the opposition right center back, that means Rashford is taking the opposition right back. Picture that. Then the far-sided winger is split between the opposition left center back and the opposition left back. They're in a hybrid role. We've discussed this before. Hybridity in the context of pressing basically means you're in a way accounting for or slash trying to cover two different players. That's going to be important here because we're going to talk a lot about hybridity. Behind that, you have your two eights, Bruno and Erickson typically, even recently due to the mount injury. And those two, Bruno and Erickson, are on the opposition's two deepest midfielders. So picture that configuration. Um, And also I'll add in here, sometimes Bruno is alternating with your center forward. So Hoyland might be where Bruno is and Bruno is where Hoyland is. So yeah, so theoretically, if United were to have pressed in a 4-3-3 the way they normally do, you would have seen Hoyland on uh, Van Hecke, Brighton's right center back, at the point where the ball was passed from Steele to Van Hecke. Then you would have had Rashford on Joel Veltman, uh, their right back, and you would have had a right winger, uh, let's say it was Sancho playing, Sancho hedging between uh, their left center back, Lewis Dunk, and their left back, who was uh, Tariq Lamptey in this match. Then you would have had Bruno and Eriksen man-marking, um, I think it was typically Mo Dehoud who was playing as Brighton's deepest midfielder, so you would have had Bruno against Mo Dehoud, and you would have had Eriksen tracking Pascal Gross, who was dropping in alongside Mo Dehoud in certain parts, and advancing ahead of Modahood in certain parts. And so Erickson would be a dynamic player who would make that either a 4-3-3 or a 4-2-3-1, depending on how Brighton were structured in their buildup. Now let's describe what they actually did. I think I, I hope that made it more visual. Now we can describe what they actually did with the diamond. What United did in this match is they roll out this 4-4-2 diamond. I think everyone knows, theoretically, that the 4-4-2 diamond has so, you know some, some built-in trade-offs versus... Uh, you know, you know, pros and cons. Uh, obviously, you have a lot of numbers centrally, so it's harder to penetrate centrally. Theoretically, downside, you don't have a lot of width. Your fullbacks have to do a lot of running. Yeah, I think that's sort of like the the meta, what, what you would, what most people have in their mind about the four four two diamond. How it played out for United, rather than in your four three three shape, Rashford playing as a left winger. Hoyland playing as a center forward. Instead, in this 4-4-2 diamond, you have two true center forwards out of possession. This is important, not just in possession, because in possession, United Rashford really played more like a left winger, and Hoyland was your traditional center forward. But out of possession, they were a true two. Both of them took up a center back in the press, uh, and Bruno would take on the deepest midfielders. What this means is less hybridity, which, which is to say, you know, less decision-making um, load on Hoyland and Rashford than there would typically be for, you know, your, your forwards. Because both basically have one man in early pressing moments. They have the opposition center backs. That is pretty simple. A pretty simple role. But the trade-off is you have three players left. Casemiro, McTominay, and Erickson for four players. Brighton's two fullbacks and their two midfielders. Because remember, Mo Dehoud is being marked by Bruno here. Casemiro 
when we're playing with a 4-3-3, when we're playing with a 4-4-2 diamond, he's the spare man. He's typically not going to be man-to-man in early pressing phases. He's going to be covering for gaps, uh, trying to prevent expo- like you know, you know, really bad exposures in pressing moments. He's not, again, he's not man-to-man. So that's true in our 4-4-2 diamond as well. So really what you have is you have two players for four opposition players. You have McTominay and Erickson responsible for both of Brighton's advanced midfielders and both of Brighton's fullbacks. That's a lot of hybridity. That's, you're putting a lot of load on Erickson and McTominay to be in the right spaces and to cover the right, cover a lot of ground. It's not impossible, but you're asking a lot. Beyond that, you're also asking Rashford and Hoyland, though they have easier jobs in terms of who they have to mark in front of them, they have to be very conscious of shielding the pass into midfield. Because remember, Erickson and McTominay, your two wide midfielders, are responsible for sort of hedging between the opposition fullbacks and the opposition midfielders, which means they can't be man-to-man, you know, up body-to-body with the opposition midfielders, which means Hoyland and Rashford really need to be shielding, need to prevent those balls directly into midfield so that McTominay and Erickson can kind of cover space instead. So we've established that the center-forward roles in the system are actually more complex, despite the fact that you've simplified the, the, the man-to-man responsibilities because you've, you've added this sort of shielding aspect to their play that's really important to the, the central compactness of your system. But beyond that, the wide central midfield roles are also really complicated because not only are you expected to cover a lot of ground, both of these players, like I mentioned earlier, are now hybrid, whereas in United's typical 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1, you only have one hybrid player, in early pressing phases, the far-sided winger, now you have two. To sum all of this up, the 4-4-2 diamond basically means that you now have created three new complex roles in your press that did not exist in your 4-3-3 press, and the stakes for errors are much higher because, you know, a simple shielding error from one of your center forwards means that both of your central midfielders, your wide central midfielders, are caught in space. And it really, ultimately, if you allow any kind of central penetration due to a lapse from your, your center forwards in shielding, it basically means the whole press is blown up. Finally, not only are the wide central midfield roles more complex, but the stakes for their errors are also higher because whereas in United's typical 4-3-3 system, if you're going to exploit the hybridity of the far-sided winger, which is to say, you know, Let's say the winger makes a mistake and he commits too much to the center back. You can clip the ball over him to the fullback. Or let's say he commits too much to the fullback. The center back can drive into space. Both of those things, or rather neither of those things, compromise team shape. If you clip a ball over the top to a fullback who's left alone, United's shape can still, they can recover, turn the ball around and restart another pressing phase. Because typically that ball is going to be kind of lazy and and clipped. You're not going to be able to play that sharp on a line in most instances. That's not the case when you exploit the hybridity in this 4-4-2 diamond. Because you're so narrow and there are two instances of it. Which is to say you have these two hybrid players, both of your wide midfielders. So uh, take for example, uh, let's say 
Erickson comes too far inside and is covering, is, is sort of cheating inside to cover Pascal Gross. That's going to leave your fullbacks in much more space than, let's say, if you were playing a 4-3-3 and Rashford were cheating towards the center back and you play clipped ball over the fullback. There, there's just, this 4-4-2 diamond formation means that mistakes in the press are much, the, the punishment, the cost of a mistake is much higher and it's probably going to lead to transitions. And it's also much easier to sort of scheme in a way to break this press, um, which you saw with Brighton later on in the match. The last thing I want to say about this, uh, the last sort of issue is because you have two hybrid players, you don't get to hide the hybrid player on the far side. So in your 4-3-3 press, like I've said probably half a dozen times, the hybrid player is the far-sided winger. He's the, he's the player on the, the pit, part of the pitch that's furthest from the ball. In this 4-4-2 diamond, let's say United force the ball off to the right side. They still have a player who's hybrid unless they can force a very specific pattern, which is the ball goes out directly to the center back from either the other center back or the goalkeeper. And then they can kind of cascade down. Erickson can head out to the fullback. Um, Rashford can head out to this center back. And Bruno can uh, sort of cascade down onto the midfielder that Erickson was responsible for. Um, so if you don't get that situation, uh, take what could happen. For example, uh, the ball goes from the goalkeeper to one of Brighton's midfielders, let's say Gross, who Erickson would be half responsible for. The ball goes back to one of Brighton's center backs, let's say Dunk. And then the ball goes to one of Brighton's fullbacks and they're through. And I, I've been struggling with how to picture, how to, how to show you guys mentally how that works, but essentially the direct ball to the center, to the central midfielder, who's not supposed to ever get the ball in these pressing phases from United's perspective, forces specific players to abandon their marking assignments and leaves a spare man. So in summary, what we've got here is you're introducing a lot of hybridity to three new positions. So you're making everybody's, you're making multiple players pressing responsibilities more complicated and you're also demanding your two wide center, central midfielders cover a lot of ground. So you've made their roles both more complicated and also more demanding physically. And finally, the downside of mistakes and the frequency of mistakes by design in this system are going to be higher. And yeah, the, the, the downside is higher and the frequency is higher. So there's a lot of downsides here. With all of that said, there are a few upsides. Aaron, do you want to talk about the upsides? A couple things here that seem quite obvious. The first being that when you have these two strikers up front marking the center backs, you're creating more central coverage than you have with the 4-3-3, where in theory at times both wingers have an eye on both the center back and the fullback. And so marking in those two center backs specifically allows you to actually close in on the goalkeeper, um, which can lead to you can force mistakes from the keeper and center backs, um, you could win the ball higher up the pitch as a result. If the keeper and the center backs can't get the ball out to those freer players that are deeper in the press, then you can force teams to basically completely out of playing their own game. 
um, which is something that we've discussed in the past as a limitation of the 4-3-3 press, right? It's not as aggressive without the fullbacks pushing in that there always are one or two not that difficult out balls. They're just very unlikely to lead to actually fully breaking the press. Whereas here, I think it's more likely to break the press, but also more likely to lead to a high ball win if you do this correctly. Um, another thing is that you have a level of counter-pressing upside. I think this is particularly true against teams like Brighton, who like to create um, a lot of Brighton's build-up play is contingent on A, drawing in a press, and B, uh, stretching that press across the pitch so that they can play through the lines in the middle. Um, you'll see Dunk, for example, playing a lot of line-breaking passes into central midfielders who are dropping, and you'll see a lot of complicated movement from players like Pascal Gross and Adam Lalana to create those opportunities for the ball to be played through the lines. And to whatever extent Brighton decimated United's press in this match, I do think they were able to prevent that a little bit more. Um, there wasn't actually that much of Brighton going straight into midfield from the goalkeeper and the center backs. They pretty much used uh, the leverage to draw out uh, players like Erickson and McTominay into central positions and then play the ball out wide and consolidate possession, which they were able to do, which they were able to benefit from a lot after they went up 1-0 in the match because the uh, actual need to progress this ball through the center of the pitch wasn't as important as just being able to prevent United from winning the ball and being able to consolidate possession, which they did a lot. After they scored the goal, you'll see them play the ball to the fullbacks and then just recycle possession and just slowly progress up the pitch. Um, and that's a luxury that you have when you're already winning the game, for sure. But it doesn't change the fact that they were able to do that throughout the match, and that was a direct concession of this pressing shape. Yeah, and, and then the last thing I would add on sort of the, the upsides, I think some people speculated that the diamond was chosen as a direct tactical response to something Brighton liked to do, which is sort of bait a man-to-man press high up the pitch, get you to bring your front five forward. So like in a 4-3-3, your two eights and your front three, get the, get you to sort of push those five guys into their final third, and then they'll have the goalkeeper clip a ball into sort of the vacated central space near the halfway line um, where you've you've left yourself at a numerical disadvantage and then transition from there. And I think this has been pretty widely discussed. And for what it's worth, the 4-4-2 diamond does make that very difficult um, because you're not actually committing five forward in the same way. Um, you're kind of staying really narrow and committing three forward really aggressively and just allowing the, the width free, which... Personally, I, I don't actually think that's a, I don't think that's a good trade-off. I, I, I'm sure I've actually, I'm sure I've already showed my hand with how I talked about the downsides of the press at, at great length um, or this pressing structure, but it, that is a fact. Like the, you could make the argument that this shape was chosen for this match with a specific tactical outcome in mind and that the goal that Brighton scored sort of just threw a wrench in that. Um, but I think there's a sort of tactical adjustment that Brighton made later that throws a wrench in that. So, yeah, I think if you execute the four four two diamond better, there's po- there's the possibility that you are more successful in preventing their fullbacks from having so much time and space on the ball in this match, and then you suddenly begin to see the benefits of 
what you were able to prevent them doing in the center. Um, but the fact of the matter is that A, McTominay and Erickson were non-factors in this match out of possession. They were often in no man's land and I think largely due to individual errors, but also I think those roles are incredibly difficult to play and, and difficult to expect them to pick up so quickly, um, especially against what I would say is one of the best build-up sides in football. Um, you so often saw one of these two central midfielders getting hedged between two Brighton players and either having to make a decision to mark one and let the ball go to the other or simply just standing in no man's land and being ready to defend either option. Um, and, and those are difficult dual situations that even like, for all I'd say about McTominay positionally, I think he's a pretty good player in duels, and he lost a lot of duels in this match, uh, to my eye at least. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is that even if this pa- even if this pressing structure is trained perfectly and you have players who are extremely capable of playing it, I still think that you're more likely to concede the ball in wide areas than if you perfectly train the 4-3-3 structure. And then it becomes a question of whether the benefits of that trade-off versus the 4-3-3 issue of uh, occasionally not having the level of aggression required to prevent teams from playing the first ball out, but almost always having a level of containment of them uh, from being able to play through you unless they do something spectacular. Um, and I'm not sure that trade-off is worth it for United, especially not at this stage where defensively they'd be making a lot of errors. I think now is a good point to discuss sort of United's first 15 to 20 minutes because I think a lot of people felt that they were playing well. And I think that's true. I think United had the, they had, they had the best of it those first 15, 20 minutes. United had a good period early on in the match using this press. They had a lot of high ball wins. However, even if you watch that period back, Brighton broke a few times. And it was because of mis-execution of the press. And you know what? This was our first time using this, this structure. The first 15 minutes of gameplay in this structure without optimal personnel. You could say, hey, just they made a few mistakes in the press, but they were still having the better of the match and Brighton just took their first chance. Doesn't that seem to be an argument for continuing to use the shape? And I would say the following to that. You're never going to be perfect when executing a press, so you're never going to completely filter out these mistakes. A. B. United lack depth, and if it, if they're going to be playing their depth players often this season, which it looks like at least this first half, they're going to be a system where you're going to increase the quantity of mistakes. It's a bad idea. And then finally, the most important thing, Brighton made a tactical adjustment around the 14th, 15th minute where they started pushing their fullbacks up against United's back line. And basically, this is this is how you deal with a, with hybridity in a press, right? You stretch that hybridity. You, you make those players, you get them caught in no man's land. So what they did is they pushed their fullbacks up, they brought their central midfielders deeper, and they basically put McTominay and Erickson in uncoverable space. They, 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 they made their hybrid roles irrelevant and they basically made them either commit, which would have made exacerbated the problem, or do what they did, which is stand in no man's land and watch themselves get bypassed. And that's a structural problem. If you had, be- if you had United's best personnel for this, could it have worked better? Yes, I do believe that. However, 
structural issues in presses are much bigger issues than execution issues because structural issues cannot like, I mean, it's self-explanatory. If you can execute better, get to better execution levels by training or by replacing players, the press can then work versus, you know, a structural issue is a structural issue. The same way a building, if a building has a structural issue, you have to typically knock it down and build it from the foundations. Whereas if it's, you know, a faulty beam, you can replace a beam. Uh, it, it, it's exactly that. Yeah, I think that's a lot about out of possession. And I mean, the original topic we started on here was, or, or I should say the thing we wanted to discuss was, you know, this idea that United were dominant in the first 20 or so minutes of this match. And I think ultimately what we're trying to say is that United's dominance actually in this match wasn't not there, but it came from the ability and performance in possession, I think more so than out of possession, um, at least relative to the last few games. Um, There were some changes that were made in this match in possession of the ball. I don't think that were particularly related to the 4-4-2 diamond, but those changes allowed United to play out of the back with more effectiveness and also made them look more dangerous in the final third. And I can talk about a few of those changes. Um, the most important being Rasmus Hoyland's full debut. Hoyland starting this match changed a lot of things. It gave you a long ball outlet. There are a couple of great passes from Onana straight into Hoyland. Boom, United are on the go. That's a free build-up sequence that you didn't have all of last season. Um, Hoyland was also way more dangerous in his movement, so when United were able to get into the final third and get Brighton's back line stretched, Hoyland was actually attacking the last line, and he has the physicality and the intelligence to actually make movements along the last line that facilitate uh, passes into the box that could actually lead to shot creation. That's where he got the disallowed goal from. Again, Rashford goes on a great dribble, but Rashford has been going on great dribbles for a year, and ultimately what created that goal was the fact that Hoyland was actually challenging the center backs and trying to fashion space in the center of the box where good shots are made and make something of it. Um, And that's something United haven't had. The second thing, in my opinion, was the fullbacks. Um, I think playing Regulon and Dalo in this match was made United a less error-prone in build-up compared to when they've been playing Dalo and Wambasaka, and B... Uh, they use the fullbacks specifically, uh, I'd say, tailored to maybe to the 4-4-2 diamond, but I'd say more to Brighton in that they were pushing Dalo and Regulon quite high up the pitch with Onana, Lissandro, and Lindelof spreading across to form a back three in buildup. And then what that was allowing you to do was play these huge clipped balls over the top into both Regulon and Dalo and get them into spaces where they could turn and either pass back into a midfielder or actually turn and progress forward. And both of them were, I'd say, quite effective in executing those scenarios. And basically, what that means is that even though you didn't really change that much of the build-up structure, I think you were able to, with improved personnel, get out of build-up and make more of your time in the final third than you were in previous matches. And then I think once you concede the goal, Brighton, again, they they change their view of this match into consolidating their lead as opposed to trying to play this match 50-50 um, and take more risks, I think. I think their risk appetite went down after they scored. Um, but in those first 20 minutes, I think that's what you saw when you say, you know, United looked like they had some energy in possession and they looked like they were able to 
create things on the front foot. Yeah, so I agree with you. United were very good in possession in that early stretch. They even had good spells in possession later on. Brighton didn't really trouble them with their press all that much. United were able to exit. I will say this. I take your point about the diamond. I don't think the diamond like is the reason that United's in-possession approach was better. But I will, to the credit of the midfield diamond, a few things. Midfield diamonds are narrow. Everyone knows this. I've talked about this already. Rashford was basically playing as a true, you know, inverted, you know, inside forward, left winger, whatever, on the left. Hoyland was a true striker. You had no right winger. Yeah. You also had Bruno coming over onto the left side a lot. McTominay, you know, isn't really... He was playing more as like a box threat, kind of trying to offer box threat than being, a, you know, heavily on the ball, which meant Bruno, Erickson, Rashford... And Regulon, all on the left, trying to make things happen. A lot of congestion on that left, but a lot of really good interplay. And what that meant was United could get into the final third through some combination play. And then when they got there, if they lost the ball, they had huge numerical advantage on that left. And if you maintain your rest defensive structure, that means you could, you have a lot of counter-pressing upside. Um and you still have, you know, that presence in the box that is Hoyland. And finally, Dalla was really good, isolated on the right. So you had sort of some upside switching the ball. Uh, and you saw that. He created a few chances that way. So there's that value. There's, And this is actually very reminiscent of those Ajax sides that had a, a big principle of how they played was sort of this, at the time, I would argue it was even sort of, I don't want to say revolutionary, but maybe cutting edge, let's say. Um, and this was the, it was this idea that, you know, at the time, all the major possession sides were just spreading the pitch as wide as they could. And instead, those Ajax sides were overloading one side of the pitch with one spare man providing sort of this minimal width, which is to say, you know, making sure that you still had some degree of horizontal uh, stretching of the opposition, but that player was still, uh, you know, a central threat, a part of play. Um, so in th- in that way, this tweak made United look a lot more like those Ajax sides. However, there was also a downside. United barely built down the right. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that in there because there is merit in that. I do think we saw United li- winning a lot of second balls, uh, a lot of good counter-pressing moments specifically. I think United's counter-press in this match. Not, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about pressing from goal kicks. I'm not pr- talking about Brighton pressing uh, from secure possession. Pressing Brighton from their secure possession from their center backs or anything like that. I'm talking about United lose the ball. United's first three, five seconds after losing the ball. Fantastic early on in this match. And I, I do think the Diamond played a part in that. Though I also think Hoyland played a huge part in that. And... Part of why it even worked, part of why you can sacrifice width, is because Hoyland provided depth. Uh, United were able to really easily penetrate Brighton, drop their center backs deeper, um, and create space that way. So, yeah, that's my two cents on that. Just wanted to throw that in there. Ultimately, I think the summary on the 4-4-2 diamond technical, what did this change, was I don't think it was super important in United's ability to build out of the back, which was better in this match. 
there were other factors responsible for that. We did point out some pros. I think to whatever extent United's press was broken because of the 4-4-2 diamond, I don't think that's what caused Brighton to score all those goals. I think the breaking of the press led to Brighton being able to consolidate possession in United's half, which is a problem of its own. But the actual root causes of these goals, which were all plays where Brighton were able to get the ball high up the pitch out wide, and then they had enough time and space to get the ball into an unmarked runner in directly the center of the pitch in the area just outside the box. I don't think that's the fault of the 4-4-2 diamond. I think that's personnel. And the first two, for sure, were heavily involving Casemiro, and then I think to a slightly lesser extent involving Scott McTominay. Um, They lost track of the space in front of their box, they lost track of runners going into that space, and that led to free shots at Onana that I don't think any top team should really be conceding. Um, and at least not, you know, the way we've seen them conceding these shots throughout this match and even a couple times in the first four matches of the season. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm going to be annoying and I'm going to redirect this a little bit because I want to... We're going to talk about execution and personnel. Not to say that these are the most important mistakes in this specific match, but it all starts with your front two. I mentioned earlier how important the shielding is in this pressing structure. Rashford really struggled with this. Um, And we know he's not a good out-of-possession player, but I would say in this match, he really, really, for as good as he may have been with the ball, he killed this team out of possession. He was just in no man's land all the time. He was not shielding United's wide center backs, specifically in particular Erickson, um, in their hybrid role, which meant Brighton could get the ball into their eights. Um, and at that point, it doesn't really matter how well Erickson executes his role because, or McTominay executes their role because if the ball gets penetrated centrally as a result of a failure from the front two, they're already caught. The, the midfielders are already in no man's land. You're already, the press is functionally broken if Brighton just execute technically. You really need like top of the line execution from your front two out of possession in this system. And you did not get it from Rashford in particular. Hoyland also made two mistakes that I counted. That's not how Brighton scored their goals. However, they scored their goals, like Aaron said, by getting the ball wide. Um, and then just sort of playing through wide. That has more to do with structural issues like we said earlier. So these structural issues come up. The Knights press gets broken. The ball gets wide around the halfway line. However, that doesn't mean Brighton have to score. <laughs> um, you, you, can, you see United all the time have their press broken when they're pressing in a 4-3-3. They settle back in. They turn the ball around. The reason that they couldn't turn the ball around for these goals, for these big chances that Brighton had, was because, in particular, McTominay... Erickson and Casemiro get completely lost. For that first goal, I count four mistakes. Three of them are Casemiro. He loses his runner three times. It's like an unbelievably horrid piece of defending. It's it's really bad. It's really bad. And I think, personally, I'm at a point with Casemiro where I do not think he's a part of United's best 11. I, I, I've, I counted all the errors he made in this match. He was up near 20 by the time he got the hook. And they were all kinds of errors. They were losing runners. They were rest defensive errors where he's not in the right place. They were technical errors in early buildup under pressure. They were technical errors in the second phase of buildup. 
unforced errors in the final third. All of them. Like, okay, to even if, you know, you were going to say Case's point was completely unsubstantiated, he got hooked for Hannibal Medjury in the 64th minute of this match. And, and more specifically, Hannibal Medjury went to the tip of the diamond in this 4-4-2, and Bruno went to the base, which... I think kind of tells you about technical execution levels that you were getting from Casemiro. Obviously, United are chasing the game, but you would think Casemiro would be a player you want in the game when you're chasing the game if he was playing well. Which at this point he's a he is. This was a like if I did match ratings, I might give him like a one or a two. Like it was that bad um, on rewatch. So yeah. My eye was the same. We we didn't rewatch this game yeah, together. We, to be we clear. rewatched separately. Um, we watched it individually, and we had the same conclusion. For as much as I thought, I felt that this press had structural issues. The execution you got was really bad, and I think Casemiro in particular has no excuse because the mistakes he was making weren't even as a result of a new role. They were just like jogging when he should have been running following a man who was clearly his man into the box. Um, and I realize that the the severity of my voice here probably makes it sound like I'm being really harsh, but we are five matches into the season. This is supposed to be one of United's best players. He has been one of United's worst players, if not their worst player. We're getting to a point where there should be options. I, I do not think he should be on the pitch against Bayern. Depending on who's available, I I think I agree. I mean, if you if you have Mount available, if you have Mountain Amrabat, if if, if Amrabat's available, I think it's a no brainer. Casemiro does not play. Um, at, at least I'm I'm not saying Casemiro out forever. He could turn this around, but as of right now, I think it's like you are shooting yourself in the foot rolling him out right now. He's losing markers at an, an astonishing rate. United have had a bunch of these goals now conceded this season where it's a cutback into the area. And almost always it's Casemiro's man or it's Ericsson's man. Yeah. Uh, And then in this match, you add in Ericsson and McTominay are playing these hybrid roles. So they get a little bit of slack um, because I think one of the, if you, if you want to blame the manager for this match, I think the biggest thing to blame him for is, why he thought a new system was a good idea here. Uh, and I get that they didn't, United didn't have a right winger, but these roles are really complex, very difficult. And he put two players who do not have... Erickson doesn't really have the physicals to be covering this kind of ground and doing this kind of role. McTominay can't... I, I, I don't have any faith in McTominay to execute a, a tactical role of, of, of this complexity so I think this is one where like I McTominay was really bad he made a ton of mistakes that aren't even role based and he lost runners as well but he was not put in a position to succeed and the same is true of Erickson um these were really difficult roles not what he did in the in the in the defensive third which was poor notwithstanding this is one where I'm like what's going on here man right (laughs) I think the thing that's interesting to me is it's almost like a masterclass of of midfield mistakes or midfield issues in 2023 because you have Casemiro who's going to make a bunch of actual tangible, like you watch the play and I think even, even if you're just starting to watch the game, you can see Casemiro losing Danny Welbeck 
and him making the run to score that first goal. So you have that. <laughs> and and you have a player who's going to make a lot of explicit, clear mistakes. Then you have a player in Ericsson who is, I think, less error-prone, but just more unable to actually execute the actions that he was being asked to perform. And then you have McTominay, who makes what I call, like, errors by omission, where, like, if you don't think about... It's very hard as a as a football watcher um, when you aren't privy to the tactical specifics of what these players are told before they go on the pitch to go, a player did not do something related to empty space that they should have done. He wasn't present marking the fullback, but he also wasn't marking the balls in the midfield. He wasn't involved in possession either. He wasn't involved in many or any attacking sequences, as I can remember. So he had no involvement in this match. And one might say he didn't do anything so explicitly wrong. And so therefore, if you were to take out one midfielder, you take out Casemiro. And to whatever extent Casemiro was worse than him in this match, I think it's the opportunity cost of not playing someone who's actually going to contribute meaningfully to the match. I personally agree with you, but just to play devil's advocate, some of our listeners might be listening and thinking, Aaron, didn't Mason Mount have very few touches in his these early matches this season and not contribute that much? And you came on this podcast and said that he was United's best player in those matches. Aren't you sort of, isn't this a, aren't you moving the, the, the goalposts here a little bit? What would you say to that? I will say that I think Mount should have been more involved in those games, and I think it's a tactical failure that he did not get more involved in those matches, first of all. Second of all, I would say it's not the fact that he didn't get touches in isolation with McTominay. It's the fact that he didn't get any touches, but he also wasn't really an outlet, but he also didn't really get involved in the press, and he also made a number of errors in settled defensive shape, uh, defending cutbacks from Brighton. I think he was he was the secondary error for, for both of the first two goals. And so, you know, you can, you can get away with only having a limited involvement in possession if you're excellent out of possession and you provide an outlet for your team. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not as binary as you have touches, you're good, you don't have touches, you're bad. But it's like if you don't have touches and you're not an outlet and... You're not giving your your teammates options, and you're not contributing out of possession, and you're making key mistakes defensively, then this is not a good performance, even if none of those things were super explicitly clear from just watching the match to any individual who would have looked at that match. Yeah, I, I think what makes your argument for me compelling is he was very bad out of possession, and if he had done what he did in possession, but he was adding a ton of value out of possession, executing his role at a really high level or even at a, a good level, I would be like, it's okay. You can live with that. But he wasn't. He played very poorly out of possession. And in fairness to him, I think the biggest defense of Scott McTominay over his time at United is that he's played matches with simpler roles out of possession, where he has done those roles well enough. I don't think there's a clear, I would have played this player instead of McTominay on the bench, which is the other thing I'll, I'll say. I just don't think that he had a good match. General point of the last 10 minutes was if the midfield had played well out of possession, this could have worked okay. Um, I don't think United would have dominated this match. I think they still would have conceded chances. 
I think they would have been pretty reliant still on scoring first. But it certainly made it really hard to win that they played this poorly out of possession in particular. The other funny thing I'll add, the other, the one more anecdote I'll add is that it's really funny that, you know, we mentioned Casemiro got hooked for Medjbri, and then Bruno went to the base of midfield. And the reason why it's funny is because Bruno then goes and loses Joao Pedro about five minutes later uh, for the third goal. He just completely watches Pedro run behind him uh, straight into a shooting position uh, at the top of the box. And so, you know, United had four midfielders here who made key errors, all of which I'd say played a part in at least one of Brighton's goals. Yeah, and, and, and I would add on, Medjury came on, and obviously he scores a fantastic goal. Well done. Um, but he was running around like a chicken with his head cut off. He clearly didn't know what he was doing, executing the role that he was in out of possession. Um, really weird sub, in my opinion. He brought energy, but I'd rather have somebody it felt, doing It that. felt punitive, I think. I agree. It felt like I want Casemiro off the pitch rather than I want Hannibal Medjury on the pitch, which I don't think is a good scenario to bring on a youngster anyways. Um, anyway, I, th- I think the a good ending point for the subject is, you know, you said you're not sure you want Casemiro in the side for Bayern Munich. I'm, s- I'm, I'm sure I don't. I'm s- <laughs> Last thing I'll say on this issue, there was a lot of suggestion that, you know, the midfield wasn't the issue early in these earlier matches. Like, actually, United's defensive players should have been doing more, or their forward line should have been doing more. I think it's partially true, in particular with the forward line, but for the most part, midfield has been a complete mess. Um, and I think that's mostly down to Casemiro across the five matches, but in this past match, McTominay, Erickson, and Casemiro. Moving on. Moving on. How do you think the fullbacks were in this match, Aaron? Let's keep this real short. Uh, just quick hits. I thought, okay, I thought Regulon and Dalo were two of United's three best players in this match in the balance of things. So Who's your third? Is it Hoyland? I think for me Hoyland. it's Hoyland. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep, agreed. Yeah, Regulon, Regulon was an outlet, athletic, had some really good moments, made good decisions on the ball, didn't really give it away. Big attacking threat, I think, relative to some of the other fullbacks we've had. Dalo was fantastic in build-up, lots of really penetrative and progressive passes, some good moments in the final third. I don't think either of them were hugely problematic defensively. Um, they were kind of pinned out of the press by Brighton's uh, by Brighton's setup. Essentially, we didn't really talk about this in the press somehow, despite talking about it for 25 minutes, but um, one thing Brighton did was they pinned um, their wingers really high up and then dropped the forwards deep to match United's diamond. And what United did to solve that was actually push Lissandro Martinez into midfield with Welbeck when he dropped deep. And so what you had was Lindelof being the spare man in the middle. And then you had Regulon and Dalo who were pinned back when Brighton were building from goal kicks. And they were forced to stay at the half line because Adingra and Matoma, Brighton's wingers, were just holding their width out wide and not really allowing um, Regulon and Dalo to press into that empty space. And so they were really non-factors in the press. Um, I thought they were fine defensively, and I thought they were very good in possession. Yeah. Not much more you can ask, given the rest of the team's calamity. Agreed. In fact, I thought Regulon was better than I possibly could have expected, personally. If he plays like this, I will be thrilled. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Not to say that he was flawless. He had a couple of moments where he got played around, but for the most part, I thought he was quite good. Martinez obviously gets kind of skinned for the second goal, I think it is. Um, 
but otherwise... I don't really think it's his fault. I, I agree. You got a ball rolling across the face of goal, and... Again, this is just a general philosophical thing for me. This isn't, like, Martinez-specific. Once you expose center backs, the odds of them succeeding plummet. And so this is when you wind up with these embarrassing things happening. They get memes. But fundamentally, center backs who play in sides that are well-organized get memed so much less. And this is not a coincidence because they wind up in these situations less. You're putting them in a position where they have to predict correctly what's going to happen, which in their heads is random, other than what you know about the forward already. And then not only that, but act fast enough to stop it. And this is something we saw with Dalo defending Gabriel Jesus' goal against Arsenal. He had no chance. He slid in because he was going to block whatever he could possibly block. And, you know, could players do better in those scenarios? Sometimes they could, but there's no player in football who's going to get situations where their ball is rolling across the face of goal in front of a striker's dominant foot, and they're going to stop that consistently 10 times out of 10. Um Without issue. There's, there isn't a player in the history of football who's going to do that. And so I, it's pretty pointless, I think, to get on Lissandro's case for that goal. Or even Onana for failing to predict where the shot would go. Like, how is he going to figure it out? Yeah, I don't even... Th- he, he, has a, he has half a second, so... Okay, so we've discussed the personnel. We've discussed the tactics. Aaron, what's the ultimate verdict on the diamond? And also, related, how much blame does the coaching staff hold for this loss because I think for the most part these first four matches we haven't been that critical of the management um we've said that this is execution issues and that these things will will sort of be ironed out as you get the players you need into the side um yeah so those two questions fire away I never similar with goals where I'll say I never like to say this thing was entirely at fault for a goal I don't like to go and say, I think the coaching staff was entirely responsible for this loss because we just talked for 20 minutes about how a bunch of players played badly. Um, but that being said, I personally believe that playing the 4-4-2 diamond was not something that I would have done um, and was something that led to mistakes in the press that made it more difficult for United to prevent a very good build-up team from playing through them and then more difficult to play their way back into the game when they went down. Um, I think the substitutions were ineffective. I, I give him a pass on the Hoyland substitution because he, Ty Hawk said he was unfit, and we don't need another injury situation, and United were down 2-0. Um, I give him less of a pass on the Casemiro substitution because, like I said, it felt punitive. I don't really know what else United could have done to get back into this match at that point, given the players they had on the bench, and that's where injuries come in. So ultimately, I think the main point of criticism is this diamond. Personally, I don't really want to see it again. I think while we discuss that there are upsides that could potentially make it a viable system in the long term, I don't really see those pros as being so good that it's worth another however long it's going to take to get that system to be at its maximum utility. I think our squad is... Um, vulnerable to injuries when executing a shape like that. I think United still have a limited amount of players who are really highly effective in a press. And 
United have a season of decent out-of-possession play in a 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3 formation. So why change it up now? Even if that means, you know, out-of-possession, you're going to play a, a player who has never played a career game at right wing, at right wing, and you get the other nine players to do their thing, um, I, I would still do that. I would still play, you know, Mason Mount or Bruno Mars. Uh, Bruno Mars? Yes. No, you're keeping that in. Bruno <laughs> Mars. Bruno Mars at right wing. Can you understand how frustrated we are about this? Okay. Mason Mount or Bruno Fernandes, or Sofia Amrabat, or even, you know what, if you're going to bench Casemiro, throw him at right wing. I don't know, but I wouldn't play a 4-4-2 diamond. Yeah. And I think I think the management deserves a level of criticism for that, and I think if, you know, Ten Hag implied that he thought United were dominant in the first 20 minutes, if they go back and they watch this match and they decide that, you know, this is something that they liked, I think that says far more concerning things than anything we saw in the first four games. And I'm going to say one more thing. I stand by the take that the first four games of this season were not something that I was extremely concerned about. I think losing to Tottenham was unlucky, and I think losing to Arsenal was expected. And the Wolves' performance had a half that was really not good, and that was probably the worst that we've seen of it. Um, and the Nottingham Forest game, United were comfortably the better side. And so... Yes, am I concerned now? A little bit. And if United can't sort this out and can't figure out how to how to succeed without personnel, it seems like it's not going to be available for the better part of the first half of the season. That could be a, a problem that defines Ten Hag's tenure. But that doesn't change what we said about the first four matches, I don't think. I think that's a new problem that's been introduced now in the light of recent events that have happened. I think you basically nailed it. In particular, this is how I would... Boil it down a little differently. The absence of a right winger is a real problem. I understand the draw to change shape such that you're not reliant on one. However, you've just spent a year getting this side to a competent level with the press. They are at a competent level with the press. The press works. There's a few tweaks that need to be made. You need to get these players healthy and back in the side. But the press in the 4-3-3 shape works. Was Antony key to how the right wing functioned? Yes. Do I think Antony is the only player in the squad who can perform the out-of-possession needs of the right wing role in the 4-3-3 press? Absolutely not. And whether that means putting McTominay out there, or Mason Mount, which is an idea I'm softening towards, or Bruno Fernandez, or Casemiro, or Sofian Amrabat, or... Palistri, who I don't think is one of the players who can execute the press the way you need to. I don't care who it is. Go back to the 4-3-3. Because I think someone actually asked me on Twitter what I thought about switching to a diamond before this match. And I said, I am against a new system mid-season. Actually, I'll I'll take you back to a, a Klopp quote from last season. Klopp gets asked when Liverpool are reeling. What's plan B? What are you going to do? How are you going to fix this? And he goes, there is no plan B. There's only do plan A better. That's what United need to do right now. They need to do plan A better. Because plan A works if you just stick with it. This plan B, the overhead to get to it working is so high. In fact, I think it's so high that we will see managerial change before you see this system click. That's my guess. Um, And so I agree with you. 
The I, this is an all time. This match was really bad from a managerial perspective relative to all of the other matches that we've seen in the last 13 months. Um, A very bad display. And I agree, the absolutely most concerning thing is if they rewatch this match and rewatch those first 20 minutes and say, really, less so the first, if they rewatch this match and they say, we just need to do this better. It's not that we need... To change something, we just need to execute it at a higher level. At a, at a higher level, that's a really concerning thing to get wrong. Um, and, and if we see this diamond get rolled out for the next two weeks, I'm gonna start getting worried. Um, so if you if you am I worried right now? Not yet. But if this formation sticks, not if these results continue, if this formation sticks, I will start to get worried. It's still a very tough run of matches. There's every chance you run out the 4-3-3 and lose this match anyways. Yeah, away to Bayern, whatever. First match next is away to Bayern. A, I'm not that confident. B, I'm not that worried about being not that confident because Bayern's good. C, United don't need to beat Bayern as long as they can beat Galatasaray and Copenhagen. So it's not particularly important of a match. All right, however... That home fixture against Bayern, we need to be competitive by then. Like we should be, we should not be losing. It's that more important from a process standpoint that United are good than to get the result. Yes, I agree. After that match, you have Burnley away, Crystal Palace at home, Crystal Palace at home again, Galatasaray at home, Brentford at home, Sheffield United away, Copenhagen at home. Going into the Manchester derby, that's seven matches where United should be the clear favorite to win. The hardest match there, I by the looks of it, is Brentford. And that's a team that's mid-table in the Premier League. If you can't go to those seven teams and produce convincingly dominant performances, and at the end of that seven-game stretch, United are still dwindling at like 10th in the table, I think that's the point at which I start to become really worried. Right now, they're playing tough teams with an injury crisis, and there were mistakes, but I think... Major mistakes in one match is not going to change my view of the first four matches, and it's not it, it's not going to change my view of the next eight either. Okay, Aaron, let's say we go back to the four three three, whether it be Bayern away or next weekend. We get healthy, or actually no, no. Let's say we go back to the four three three, but we still have these health issues. We don't have all the players available. Let's say of those seven matches after the Bayern match. In the 4-3-3, we still drop a lot of points. Uh, maybe not a lot of points, but, you know, drop some points in really un- in poor fashion. What, 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 where are we at then? Because that's probably the... I, I, honestly, I don't think that's a really a... Actually, if, if there's injury issues, I think that is a realistic outcome. And where are we then on the managerial side, on... If you have as many or more absentees as you did today, that's definitely going to be a hamper on results, because let's be honest, I don't really want to see Scott McTominay playing matches, and yet even I probably would have started him in this match. But not in a diamond. But not in a diamond. I think what's more likely is that you're going to have at least somewhat more players available, and I think at some point you just got to look at this team and say, this is enough to beat. Like, if you're playing Rashford, Hoyland, Bruno, Regulon and Dalo are seemingly doing well. You have 
Lissandro, you have Lindelof, you have Onana, and then you're able to put some combination of, you know, Amrabat and and Mount back into that midfield. Even if it's the even if it's the eleven you put out today, plus like one more player, take your pick of the midfielders. I still think that's got to be enough to win more than half of these games. It's it's bottom half opposition. This it, I hate to be like a like a you know fan cam podcast, but this is Manchester United, and like this squad is good, and there's talent, and there's attacking talent, there's defensive talent, there's midfield talent. Like injuries are injuries. But, come on. Like, if it gets worse than it is now, then it gets worse than it is now, and I changed that take. But I, all of the signs point to there being more players available in two weeks than there are now. And, at worst, the same. More good players. And so, it's up to Ten Hag and the coaching staff to put those players on the pitch in a formation that they're used to playing, that has worked in the past, that should work in the present, against teams that are vastly inferior, and go get results. Unless you persist with this four four two diamond, and like there's no improvement in execution, which is plausible, I don't see. We're probably gonna lose to Bayern midweek, probably. But after that, um, I think they're gonna win those those matches. I wouldn't be surprised if they went six from seven, seven from seven. If they go do that, I do think the pressure will cool, and I think then we'll get our season started. But that's what you need to do. If you don't do that, I'm not placing ultimatums. Like, we're just two fans who have a podcast. But that that's when you start to have, you know, fan pressure to the point where it's really difficult to go back. You need to, you need to show people that there has been progress and that there's something to look forward to. And I think that's true no matter who you are. Switching to the diamond is an understandable experiment in a vacuum. Defending it in the post-match is understandable if you haven't rewatched. Sticking with it for one match away to Bayern probably won't be deeply consequential. Sticking with this formation for the, this run, unless there's a drastic change in like, unless there's a lot of tweaks and you get way higher execution levels, that will shake my confidence in the tactical decision-making more than anything that has happened in the last 13 months. Let's do a quick no details. No details. This is the segment where we allow you to ask us anything you want, but with one caveat, the questions cannot be about football. And frankly, guys, for the last few weeks, we've been doing no details because the podcasts have been a little bit depressing. Um, and so we have not been calling for no details. We've just recorded and then decided after after the fact that we should add no details to remind you that we're still fun people who enjoy our lives even when Manchester United lose. Um, so Case, what have you done this weekend? This weekend, actually, it was a good weekend. I uh, Friday, I went to a party at a friend's house. Saturday, I celebrated a friend's birthday and then had a couple friends over for dinner. Today, I... Rewatched this match in great detail for about four and a half hours while WhatsApping you all day, and then I uh, played spike ball in a park, and then I came home and recorded this. It was a fantastic weekend, barring two hours on Saturday morning. I played spike ball for the first time a couple weeks ago, and it's fun. <laughs> We're showing how young we are with this. <laughs> this is like such a 
It's it's a very Gen Z thing. Um, Spikeball is like volleyball combined with like tennis. Yeah. Does that make sense? It doesn't. Yeah. It definitely doesn't make any sense. But like if it's a really YouTube weird Spikeball, if awesome. you don't understand this. Yeah. Um, but it's fun. Yeah, my weekend was pretty good. Um, I went home to see my family, which is really nice. Um, Saturday was a surprise 40th birthday for a family friend. Um, so I got to see a lot of extended family, which was great. And then my brother's birthday is on Tuesday, so today I planned a birthday day for him. Um, I don't know if I've talked about this before, but the Stratford Festival is this theater district town in Ontario with a lot of, like, it's the biggest Shakespeare festival in Canada, and it runs every year. And they occasionally do some other musicals. So I got tickets for uh, for us to see Rent um, at the Stratford Festival today. It was great. And then booked this cool restaurant for dinner. It's this, like, converted uh, church in Stratford. It used to be a, a full cathedral, and now they've made it into a restaurant with a bar and, like, a really, really good chef. So, yeah, I had an awesome Sunday. And... Like you said, a good weekend, except for when I was watching this match. So, <laughs> and when I was watching this match, yeah. <laughs> and then when I was rewatching this match, and then when I was texting you about this match, and then when I was talking about this match on this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm. I'm honestly. Yeah, we've really. I've I've signed off like the last four episodes where things are going to get better. I won't promise you that, but I still. I I won't promise you that, but I do still believe it. Things will get better as a promise that can't be unfulfilled because surely, surely at some point in time in in the distant future or the or the near future, things will be better than they are in this exact moment. The copium um, is coursing, and even if things veins. go up in flames, hopefully there will be at least one win in the midst of that where we can be absolutely shameless. That being said, yeah, I mean, honestly. We started this podcast to be something that would be really fun. And I think it's funny that our solution to this club is just to, like, dig the hole deeper. Um, <laughs> yeah, but... to just talk about the, <laughs> in great detail why we're suffering. We were like, you know, this team's pretty bad. You know what we should do? We should have a podcast that we put tons of work into making really good, that we, you know, spend hours every week and just get really into the details. So that even when they are bad and when things do begin to become unhinged we could just sink our (laughs) sink our teeth in deeper and get even more involved with this um we're starting to sound very woe is me and to be honest i really enjoy making this podcast and i'm really thankful to everyone who listens to it so yeah it's it's cathartic and hopefully it's cathartic for you guys too and also hopefully it actually ends up bearing out because i think i do still believe this team will get better i do still believe that even though I'm not going to promise it anymore. I was promising it before. I'm not promising it anymore. I do think it'll get better. <laughs> in the near future. Uh, in the near future. Um, okay, let me ask you a no details question. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Top three books. We got this question from somebody a couple weeks ago. I didn't do it because we were doing similar ones. Good question. I apologize. I don't know. I'm not going to log into Twitter to look. Just a general advice. Any of our listeners who also go on Twitter... When United lose, just don't go on Twitter. Simply log off. This is this is the most hypocritical advice if I it's repeat not. it. I, it's not. Oh, if you repeat it, yes. <laughs> if you repeat it, yes, it is. Because you you just you lean in. It took me years to come to this. 
simply don't tweet. No one ever regrets the tweet they don't send. Look at look at the app icon before you open it. It's a giant X. It's saying do not. Don't click. Like, don't click. <laughs> okay, top three yeah. books, go. I don't read enough. That's what this is making <laughs> me realize. I, I mostly read, like, this sounds so sad, but I mostly read, like, the news and, like, football news and long-form articles. Um, but I can give my top three books, I guess. I mean, I already said Moneyball is one of my favorite movies. The book is fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And it's probably one of the more recent books I've read top to bottom, so it's fresh on the mind. Let's see. I did a fair bit of higher-level English literature classes later in high school, especially. And we read a lot of really interesting books. Um, I think my favorite was Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. Fantastic book. Um, it's a fantastic yeah, book. Yeah, really good book. Um, essentially, it's about colonization in West Africa. But the, it's not told through the lens of the colonizer, which I think is why it's such... Correct, yeah. correct. It's told through the lens of someone who was colonized, but it's done as a historical fiction. So you... Um, and it's also done as a, as a like, Hamarsha um it's it's done through a tragic hero yeah. so it's it's a very interesting very good novel and i think it's also the best-selling novel out of africa of all time so it's not yeah, like we're, this we're is talking not about a little known novel I know. sometimes we get into these conversations and we're like have you ever tried the french fry pasta <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, um can i give a third this is quite sad i i also just don't really read fiction which makes it hard like i'm not gonna say like my favorite book was like I mean, I read Ferguson's autobiography. I've read a, I've read a fair few autobiographies. I find them interesting. Um, one of my favorite um, one of my favorite athletes is Clara Hughes, who's a Canadian. She's the only Canadian to ever win Olympic medals at both the Summer and Winter Games. She's a cyclist and also a um, speed skater, and I think she's actually best known for her involvement with mental health initiatives in Canada. So she's like one of the first, I think, public figure Canadians who opened up a lot about having depression. And so she does a lot of campaigning and like bicycle rides across Canada where she gives talks about um, about mental health and mental wellness. And she wrote a book about her life and, you know, her upbringing, how that influenced her mental health and her uh, her status as an Olympian and how that influenced it. So it's a great read about general mental health and sports. And I think a testament to fortitude and, and strong character. So, yeah, that's what I'd choose, I think. See, you did have three books, and those were good answers. Oh, you're going to na- name, like, you're going to have a book by Marquez, and then you're going to have a book by, like... I am going to have a book by Marquez. I have read Marquez, by the way. I read Chronicle of a Death Foretold. Fantastic But book. I feel like it, it is a good book, but I feel like I also would have liked to be able to read it in Spanish like you can. Well, you're spoiling my answer here. Um... <laughs> okay, I'll start. For our listeners, if you haven't read Inverting the Pyramid, this is not one of my top three books all time, but Inverting the Pyramid, if you just want to know the historical context of the game that you spend hours every week watching, which I'm sure you do if you're listening to this podcast, you have to read Inverting the Pyramid because uh, it tells you the his- the tactical history of the game from its birth. Um, and it also tells you just a lot of historical, tells you about historical figures that you never would have known about. If you weren't alive watching football in the 1920s, which I would be... If you were alive watching football in the 1920s and you listen to this podcast, first of all, you're my favorite listener. Second of all, (laughs) I want your tips on longevity. Um, But yeah, definitely read. 
Otherwise, my top three, ooh, very hard. Uh, I love For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. Um, love that book. Um, Hemingway, not a personal role model, but uh, I do enjoy his art. Yeah, in terms of other books, Aaron kind of spoiled this. Like a few years ago, I, I, I speak Spanish, or I, at the time I spoke Spanish, but like not at the level I wanted to. And I was like, how can I address this issue beyond, you know, using it day to day? Which is difficult when you live in a country that isn't a Spanish-speaking country. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to pick up some difficult literature and, and struggle through it. And so I started reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez's books. Um, and I started... <laughs> which with, is which is such a ridiculous way <laughs> to, like, learn the fundamentals of Spanish. I know. I knew I, I had the fundamentals. This was... A, I was at a point where I could like get the gist, even if I didn't take an academic um, angle on it. Um, but I decided I wanted to, and so I just like kind of fought through them. And they didn't want it didn't wind up really being a fight because they are so incredibly beautifully written. Um, my personal favorite is uh, Hundred Years of Solitude. Um, amazing, just like. Even if you read in English or whatever language is your first language that you, you're most comfortable reading it in, I'm sure there's translations in all kinds of languages. I'm not going to do a remotely exhaustive list. Um, fantastic book. So that's definitely in my top. Otherwise, I'm really glad that I've at least read this author because I don't sound like I completely just appeared on the face of the earth. Um, well, he's like, yesterday, he's like which one is nice. of the. I think most people, he's no he's very he's relevant. The most famous Latin relevant. American author of all time, if not he's definitely top three. Again, Case is not giving you niche picks here. He's just <laughs> honestly the top three is really hard for me. So I'll I'll just tell you what I'm reading right now. I'm reading La Fiesta del Chivo, which is like a it's a, the feast of I think it's I think in in English I think the title is the feast of the goat, um, and that is about uh, Trujillo, who was the the authoritarian leader of the Dominican Republic during the early 1900s from like 1930 till 1960 something. Um, and it's sort of, it's, it's fantastic. I'm not done with it yet. So I can't say it's definitely, I couldn't say it's in my top three books all time, but it's really interestingly told. It's told from the perspective of a woman who fled the Dominican Republic during her youth, whose father was sort of a part of the regime. And then it's told from the perspective of a group of men who are plotting, who are moments before an assassination attempt. And then it's told from the perspective of Trujillo himself. Um, so it's just a fantastic set of like interlocking stories that I assume converges at some point. I haven't gotten there yet, um, but I'm really enjoying it. So those, those are my books right now. Um, As a six, this is a very case and Aaron set of choices. Like we got two Spanish fiction novels we got a football tactics book, a sports analytics book, a book about a relatively niche Canadian celebrity, and then uh, a book about colonization in Africa. And I also so, had a book about uh, a Hemingway. So it's seven. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think, okay, I think we've done quite well there. I agree. Fair enough. I'm okay with that. Okay. Okay. All right, guys. Anyway, no books about diamonds. Just so, just so, you no know. No books about I diamonds. Am. I still believe things will get better. That's what I've got. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so.
<laughs> see you midweek okay. after the Bayern I... match, maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Hope um, you enjoyed this I'll week's you Devils this. in the Details. You can follow us at Devils we ITD Pod on Twitter like or on a variety of streaming platforms. Record session Our here awesome and theme music was made by Jacob Barn Game. You can find just at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. And have a great week. I'm most we'll likely going time. to have to edit this tomorrow, which means that. I, I think what it means is that we might not end up recording after the Byron match, but we might end up recording after the Byron match. So stay tuned, and if not, we'll end up recording after the Burnley match, and we'll talk about Byron in that upload. So either way, stay tuned, and read some Achebe, read some Marquez, read some Achebe, read some Achebe, read some Marquez, read some yeah. and enjoy your week. Don't think about this. Adios.